the startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is the Pain of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. I'm Paul and I'm back with Stephen as always for our Pain of Scale series and today, today, customer development, building products your customers will buy. I mean, this is for me one of my favorite topics and I'm so, so excited about the guest today because she's probably one of the leading thinker in that field and I'll let you, Stephen, introduce well, her to us. Well, she wrote the book. I mean, that's always exactly, the right, way there to you describe go. it, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> customer development is, as you put it, understanding how to build products customers will buy. I mean, it doesn't get much more important than that. And right. this is a critical discipline for any tech leader, no matter what stage. And so instilling that discipline of customer development at the heart of the startup journey from the beginning through to the end is absolutely critical. So delighted that we're going to dig into that topic with Cindy Alvarez. And Cindy is the Director of Customer Research at GitHub. She's the author of the book, Lean Customer Development products your customers will buy. And Cindy was formerly with Microsoft and still actively works with them, running workshops on customer development across the organization to this day. So Cindy, welcome to the Pain of Scale podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just jump straight in. For those who haven't read the book, what is lean customer development and why does it matter? Yeah, lean customer development is making sure that you're going to have customers by the time you've built something. And it's a little bit foreign to folks because, you know, typically you'd have a product and then you'd try and find people who would buy it. And the feeling was that you had to show something to someone to engage their time. And the problem is that what people say they want is not actually what they'll end up buying, but everyone out there, every potential customer out there has a problem they need to solve. And if you can figure out early what that problem is, you can actually kind of co-develop a product with that customer base. So you can think of customer development as like literally building up your customer audience as you are building your product. I love that. It's so succinctly put, and I'd never thought about it that way around. You talk in your book about the first challenge for that is inside the building. What do you mean by that? The people who build solutions are doers, are makers. We want to get something concrete out there. And for early founders, a lot of your role is going to be selling. You know, the phrase reality distortion field is like making people believe that this thing that doesn't exist is going to exist. And so it's very, very easy, one, to be convinced of our own brilliance. That's just a human trait. (laughs) And the other to be in that selling mode where we're going out and saying, don't you want this? Wouldn't you like this? And the thing is, if you're a pretty charismatic human, you can get most people to agree that, yes, they do have that problem. But when you're not in the room standing there eagerly and they're standing there with their credit card making a decision, they're not going to decide the way that you think. And so we want to spend our time on ideas and creation. And it feels like a step backwards to stop doing that, to take a pause on that and say, let's go ask open-ended questions of some humans who might feel like a distraction. Because honestly, if you're very excited about an idea and you go talk to three people who one of them is eager and the other two are like, I don't know, I'm not really sure, it's demoralizing. You know, it kind of lets all the air out of your balloon and you lose a day of work on that like, oh, I don't know if we should build this. You know, we had a vision and we're not sure if it's right. And that feels like you're wasting time. And especially in the startup phase where everyone knows their burn rate, you've got this amount of money, you want to get something out the door. It's very easy to think, let's focus on building and we can talk to customers later. What are the some of the most common mistakes that you see 
companies make when they're thinking about implementing a customer development strategy? One of the common mistakes is thinking you can outsource it. So people will say, let's hire someone to do this, especially if it's, say, a contractor. Let's hire a researcher. They can do just a bunch of interviews. That way we can focus on the real work. So one of it is just that mindset of thinking this is not the real work. The other is as soon as you bring in a third party, it's really easy to dismiss that person. And this, again, is human nature. If someone comes to you and says, hey, I did these interviews, people don't really want what you're selling, our instinctive defensive response is to say, you probably talked to the wrong people. You probably didn't explain it right. They just don't get it. And it's very easy to reject that. And I think as a founder, you're not going to be able to do every single interview, but it's really important to hear the interviews where someone is not excited. And that doesn't even mean that they're necessarily like, wow, your idea stinks. But someone who's kind of giving you these like, oh, yes, <laughs> answers, because that's someone who's honestly putting a polite face on it even still. And you can see that they just, they don't get it, but the problem is not them. The problem is that you have not found the problem that they are passionate about solving. It is interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes when you push that out there, you miss those kind of semantic or those kind of emotional responses as opposed to the rational. That's something else I hadn't really thought about. I wonder if you could just take us through the structure of the customer development process in terms of the critical steps that you see people going through. Sure. So in the beginning, what you really want is a testable hypothesis. And in the very beginning, you might not be there yet. So I say step one is a hypothesis, but the reality is a lot of times we're starting from step zero, which might be, I have this vague sense that there's a population with a problem or there's a problem that needs to be fixed. If you're seeing, say, busy parents who seem stressed out about something, if you're seeing a situation where there's, you know, an inefficiency in a market or, you know, there's constantly traffic that's piled up here or there's constantly trash that isn't getting taken out, any of those things, you're like, okay, there's something in this. And you might want to do some just simple observation in the beginning or some exploratory interviews where you're really just saying like, hey, tell me about this thing. And a lot of times for folks who are in specific domains, you're going to get that naturally from being at conferences or being in professional societies or you know, talking to friends of yours. So that's kind of your step zero. And then you want to get to step one, which is a hypothesis, something you can prove, yes or no. And that's going to look like a statement that's got a person and a problem and a situation. And any part of those should be testable. So for example, you might say something like, I've noticed that... And let's hearken back to pre-pandemic times when we could just go out and do things as we chose. I've noticed that whenever I call my barber, I have to call and call and call, and it takes forever to actually get through and make an appointment. And every time I go in, it seems like this person is, is very ambitious and they want to grow their business. And I'm wondering how they can possibly get customers when they can't you know, pick up the phone. And so one solution might be, you know, maybe they hire a receptionist, but you think to yourself, surely all these small businesses can't hire someone to answer the phones. What could we do about this? And so you might get to, I have a hypothesis that micro business owners, small business owners, fewer than 10 employees have a problem with wanting to grow their businesses, but being too busy with the day-to-day -to, -day to do so. This is my hypothesis. Here's a set of customers they have a pain point, which is that they can't invest in growing their business. And they have a desire, which is that they want to do so. They're ambitious. They have a vision that they're not able to achieve. And then you might go out and find people who fall into that category. So you've got your hypothesis. Now you're going to validate it, which is say, let's go talk to, say, five small business owners that fall into this category. 
And you'd ask them fairly open-ended questions about how do you run your business? What frustrates you the most? What do you wish you could do that you can't? And a lot of people worry about the exact questions. In the early stage, almost every interview that I support or that I do myself has the same exact questions. Tell me about how you do this. What frustrates you the most? What takes you the most time? What do you wish you could be doing? If you could wave a magic wand and make anything about running your business easier, what would it be? You do those, say, five interviews, and you'll see some patterns. Or maybe you'll see the complete absence of a pattern, which suggests that maybe it's not that big a problem. But five gives you enough to kind of take stock in what you've heard and think more about, do I feel more confident about this hypothesis or less? And depending on the direction, you either rejigger your hypothesis or you say, let's talk to more of these people. And maybe now that I've had five conversations, I've got a sense of some specific questions that I really want to dig in on for my next five or so interviews. And you just repeat that process. You make that sound so simple. The mechanics of it are very simple. Sticking to it is what's actually a lot more difficult. And I find my team's role at GitHub often is not in doing the interviews, but in trying to make that sound as simple as I just explained right now, is to say, we know what this is going to look like. We know all the ins and outs of you know setting up your calendar and planning what times and scheduling interviews and figuring out when you're going to synthesize your notes so you don't end up at the end with 50 pages of notes making that simple is like any project management role. It's things are basic if you follow all a checklist and we don't all have a checklist. Yeah. So talk us through how you conduct successful customer interviews because that's at the heart of it really, isn't it? The first thing I like to tell people is to think about what you want to learn. And that's not the same as spending a lot of time on writing questions, but I find there's kind of a funny thing where when people want to learn something, they tend to jump to these oddly formalized ways of asking questions. Kind of the same way whenever you read a statement from a company, it sounds like lawyers have been fine-toothing it. People ask these very convoluted questions. And I just say, like, well, what do you actually want to know? So kind of jotting that down, like, I want to know from this small business owner what's frustrating them. I want to know if they've got things written down on paper, if they've got wall calendars, if they're using their phone. I want to know when do things run very smoothly? When do things especially fall apart? What makes them really excited? What makes them proud? How do they make decisions? Who are they listening to? You know, when they want to go to advice, who are the professionals they listen to? And what's top of mind for them? So another thing that I think frustrates founders immensely is that a lot of your customers have problems that are very valid and also they don't care. They're just dealing with it. They're band-aiding it. They're walking around the squeaky step every single day and they're fine with that. And that's not going to be someone who's ready to invest in a solution yet. They may in the future. So you think about what you're going to ask. You prepare a little opening statement because I think a lot of folks believe that a customer is not going to want to talk to me if I don't have something to sell them. I've never actually found that to be true. And also it helps to have a little canned one or two sentence bit to say at the beginning to kind of establish that you feel confident, whether you do or not, you want to project that to say something like, you know, hi, Stephen, I'm really in an exploratory phase where I'm trying to learn more about the needs of small business owners. So I'm just going to have an open-ended conversation. I'm going to try and listen more than I talk. And trust me, nothing you say will be boring. So please dig into the details. Before we begin, do you have any questions for me? 
and then allow them to ask. Damn, that, that was good. I'm in. I want to answer your questions. I could wake up and say that in a flash. Doesn't matter what <laughs> the interview topic is. And I tell people like, if you try to memorize your questions, you won't come across as human, and people won't actually be honest with you. But if you stammer over that first couple of sentences, you will feel worse, and so will the other person. Yeah. So start with that memorized bit. And then you kind of dive into your first question, which is, you know, tell me a little bit about how you're doing this today. And I always say abstract up a level. So if you want to know about someone's, I don't know, about their toothbrushing routine, don't ask about their toothbrushing, about how they get ready in the morning or how they take care of their health in general, because that's the more abstracted question. And then when they ask that first question, be quiet for what seems like an uncomfortably long period of time. I say in the book, a minute, that's actually almost certainly too long. But the point is that it should feel awkward. You should feel to the point where you think I've got to say something to feel this. <laughs> I was so tempted. <laughs> you know, because what happens in that time is that people also feel the awkwardness and they fill it with content. Because what typically happens is you think about when you see someone that you vaguely know on the street, or I guess online in these days, and you say, how are you? And they say, fine. And you just keep going because you were on your way to a meeting, right? You're not actually wanting a full deep dive. A lot of questions are asked with that sort of perfunctory politeness, but that's not what you want. So you ask someone about how their business is going and they say, great, but that's not what you want to hear. I mean, hopefully their business is going well, but you want to hear the details of how. So you ask that question and then you pause for that uncomfortable period of time. And so they'll say, things are going great. And after a few seconds, they'll say, you know, I have everything written down on paper. I've got this, you know, everything's in my book. I don't need to worry about anything as long as I don't lose that paper. And then you can kind of say, well, hang on. Has that ever happened? Well, actually... It did happen about a year ago, and I lost a bunch of appointments, and it took me weeks to catch up. That's a very interesting point. You might want to know that they've got all the software they need, but this particular piece in their tool chain, everyone complains about it. And, you know, it works, but it's those, like, kind of trailing butts that are very important. So that's why you're going to be, like, very silent. You don't want to go on mute. This feels like such a nitpick, and yet if you actually put yourself on mute while you're doing a phone interview, people will think that they've disconnected and that's disconcerting. So I'd try and like make these very non-committal noises or breathing noises so people know you're still there. If you're in person, I like, even if I'm recording, I like to take notes on paper or even on a laptop. I think at this point, most people consider that polite, even though it's a bit weird because then you can be looking down and taking notes and kind of make that little gesture like, oh, just let me get this down. And in that silence, they will still continue talking. You painted a really kind of evocative picture there of, of how you draw that kind of information and how you, how you ask good questions and how you leave those awkward silences. How do you then turn what you've learned from those interviews into insights and then into an MVP and then obviously helping the company to get the product market fit? So this is the part where I feel like it's very important to explain to people that there's a period of time in which this will seem like a really stressful mess that you, you're not getting anything out of. So you do this interview, they're almost always very pleasant. You come away feeling very energized. You've done a few of them and then you've got a bunch of notes. You're like, wait, are we learning anything? These feel all over the map. Like I don't, it doesn't make any sense. I have found that is extremely common. 
And so there's this period where you just feel like you're struggling in the void. And then suddenly you start noticing little common patterns. Like, you know what? What this person said about the times that they feel stressed, it sounded kind of similar to our second interview. And actually, if you think about it, one of the things they have in common is they're both working across time zones. And if you think about that, this other person was also complaining about the struggles of working with their coworker across the world. And now I kind of, I'm seeing something that's a pattern here. So we'll do interviews. I've really not found a better way than rehashing your interview notes on sticky notes, whether physical ones or using something like Mural or Miro to do virtual stickies. And you'll get these stickies and you kind of rearrange them in your physical or virtual mode. And you'll see like, there's a bunch of stickies clustered in this area. So that's really interesting. And then it's all, again, helpful to have another head to bounce this off. So hopefully you've got someone on your team or another startup founder who is also willing to do this with you is say, I noticed that there's a lot of commentary around this. It seems like the problem might be here. What do we know about how able they are to change or what their skill set is today? And it's really, it's like the ideation of anything else in product development. You kind of throw things around and talk about them until something starts to emerge. And I think the, the main thing that I would say is when you get that thing that starts to emerge, you're going to want to test it out as quickly as possible. And so what often happens is you've done exploratory interviews, and at some point they turn to sort of a hybrid where the first part of your conversation is exploratory. And I always like to start with that. And then you kind of take a break and say, hang, you know, thank you so much for talking to me about this. I'm curious if we could talk through a concept. And that's where you might say, I was wondering if magically something like this were to appear, how would that fit into the process you have today? Not would you buy it, not would you use it, but how would that fit in? What reasons might there be working or not working? Because at that very high level, when it doesn't sound like, here, my heart is on my sleeve, look at this thing I've built, people are willing to be honest and say, I don't think that would work, or, oh, I can't imagine using something like that. And then you can kind of politely dig in like, oh, I'm curious, why is that? And that's where you get a lot of gold as well. So you come up with this idea of, hey, maybe this solution would work. You float it very casually. You get a a reaction of some kind and you try and dig in like, why that reaction? What about that solution is not sitting right with you? And that's really where you get those ideas honed. And more importantly, you get them honed before you've become really attached to them. It's a very creative process in a way, isn't it? Incredibly. I mean, most product folks I know consider themselves very creative. This is just another lens of looking at it. You said earlier, you know, customers won't necessarily tell you what they're going to buy. So how do you then create open-ended questions to discover what they will? You know, people won't tell you what they're going to buy. They also will not tell you what they're going to use. They can't really predict what they're going to do next year. This is just human nature. And so a lot of times what we want to do is ask not a yes or no question, but something that starts with a how or a what or a who. And I actually go so far as to say you should never ask a yes, no question. And if you start to ask one, because that is what you will want to ask, it's okay to pause and reframe it. So actually midstream in an interview, if you say, you know, do you find it hard to excuse me, let me reframe that. When do you find it difficult to do X and Y? Or how have you found the consequences of when this occurrence happens? Or who gets involved when you find yourself in a situation like that? And asking those questions will give you that broader answer. So my favorite one in the developer space is asking people, do you always test your code? 
And there's no engineer out there who wants to honestly say, no, we don't always test our code. But the reality is that for most companies, there will be some time when you don't test it. It'll be an emergency. There's a deadline. There's a terrible bug that you need to roll back. There's a test that just isn't working. Like there's always some reason. And so if you're the person trying to build solutions, what you really want to find out is what is that reason that causes you to do this thing you don't want to do that you're incredibly stressed about? Because if I can figure out when it's happening, then I can architect a solution. So if you say something like, tell me in the last six months about a time when you were just unable to test some code that you were putting into production. Now you've signaled that it's actually okay. It's socially acceptable to say, well, there was that one time. You're still leaving the door open for someone to say, actually, we're really proud of this. We've tested 100% of our code in the last six months. Great. But for everyone else, they can say, well, there was this time. And you can pull out what are those elements of creating this situation. So open-ended questions all the way. It's incredibly hard, but people are very forgiving of you stopping midstream and redirecting your yes-no question into one that allows for that storytelling. So can we talk a little bit about how you apply the concept of customer development strategies for companies at a, at a later stage? Because obviously one can see early stage, this makes a huge amount of sense, but my sense is it's going to make a lot of sense at later stages as well. Absolutely. So customer development is, if anything, more important as you get later stage because the stakes are higher. Because not only are you potentially building the wrong thing, but you're losing goodwill with customers who are out there in the world talking to other customers, potentially complaining. If you upset a customer, there's an incredible amount of work that goes into support tickets and reassuring people and reestablishing trusted sales relationships. So there's a lot of on the line. And so you want to use a similar method. What's going to be different is that you have to think about, first of all, who you're talking to. So among enterprise customers, there's always going to be somewhere you can't float exploratory ideas because you just will never set that expectation that it is exploratory and you run the risk of seriously setting back relationships, getting people very worried. So people who work in your field probably know who those customers are. And so you know, don't talk to them. Pick the folks who you know you can have a hypothetical conversation where you can set the expectation of, we'd love to talk about some exploratory ideas or talk about some things, you know, kind of adjacent to the way you're using our solutions today because we're thinking about how we can expand and better serve you. And then you lay out that expectation and you do the same thing. You say, tell us about how you're doing this today. And a lot of times there's a sensitivity there because you feel rightfully like you ought to know this. So if you've been working with a customer for two years, it feels silly to go in and say, so how are you using our product? Like, that's your job to know, right? This is where I find it's incredibly helpful to bring in someone from another team to reinforce that not everyone is going to have that baseline understanding. So if you are the person who is an account manager for a team, you're probably not going to want to be the person who goes and saying, tell us how you're using our product or tell us what's working and not working. You're going to want to borrow someone from the product team or from a research team or a design team or some adjacent team where there is a reason for them to not know. I mean, GitHub is a global brand. How are they putting customer development into action at the kind of scale they're operating at? So within GitHub, it tends to happen naturally and in the flow of things. Everyone is kind of trained up to ask why questions and open-ended questions. I, within my team, do a lot of kind of practicing of what does that look like? We've got a monthly day of learning, actually. So once a month, there's a day set aside for people to learn anything they want. 
And I think just about all of them, someone on my team is doing either a talk or more importantly, a workshop so that we can practice those skills of saying, you know, okay, so a customer comes to you and says, I want this feature. How are you going to respond? And practice saying things like, oh, that's really interesting. You know, I'd love to hear more about that. Or you're right, we don't support that today. I'm curious if we did support that, what would it allow you to do? Or I'd love to understand more about why you're asking. So instead of saying yes or no, both of which kind of eliminate the avenues for further conversation, practicing asking why. One thing that a lot of us have heard, and I think everyone who's been to business school has done case studies on the five whys. So this idea that you'd ask why five times to get to a root. And I always say, have you ever tried doing that? It sounds incredibly rude. Why? Well, why? And especially if you have a customer who says, I want this feature and you say, why? They're probably going to think you're being kind of a jerk. So we practice, you know, kind of padding it. Interesting. Oh, I'd love to know more. And eventually you're going to get a why in there, but that padding becomes important. And so that practice allows product managers who are at a customer company to throw in an open-ended question. It allows a solutions engineer to put that in. It allows someone on support to ask that. And so just encouraging that and then also giving people a lot of avenues for sharing that back, whether that's in the company Slack or we've got a repo that's dedicated to customer insights so that we can cross-pollinate that information back. Who else does this really well that you admire in the industry? Well, self-serving again, but I have to say Microsoft. And again, Microsoft has not been known for this historically, but there are several divisions who have really strongly embraced this notion of constantly asking why they're absolutely great at that. Airbnb, Netflix are also companies that have a good way of asking contextual questions and really thinking about how can we do these bits of learning as we go. Because that's the other thing that makes people hesitate about customer development. They think of it as this long process they're going to have to invest in. And I would say the only times that I've been in and seen people invest in full-time customer development is at the very beginning of a startup process, or if you are a large enough enterprise company that you have the luxury of carving off some people and sending them off to do a white space exploration for a number of weeks. And almost everything in between, you just are never going to have that luxury of time. And so most customer development is a little bit every week and accumulate over time. It's just part of your culture. Yeah. And And once it becomes second nature, it doesn't feel like this additional tax. It's just something you're doing. If you're answering a question anyways, you might as well follow it back with, could I ask a little more about this? Cindy, you've been a fascinating, compelling guide. Really, really interesting to dig into this topic with you. Clearly, I've read the book, Customer Development, How to Build Products Customers Will Buy. I'd encourage everybody who's listening to this to read it. It's a real real goldmine. How can people learn more? Once reading the book, you can follow me on Twitter. I tweet as Cindy Alvarez. I also highly recommend O'Reilly's Safari Learning Library has some little video classes from me and from other people who are, you know, kind of praising the customer development mantra. One thing that's kind of a side topic that I always recommend as well is learning about cognitive biases. There's plenty of great psychology books. That's also a course that I sometimes teach on O'Reilly. So if you see that, I'd love to see you in one of my future classes. And cindyalvarez.com? Yes. A great resource as well. Uh, Cindy, thank you so much. It's been really interesting, very useful. Excellent. Thank you so much. 